Hi, this is Dr. Vaish Sarathi, and today we'll be mapping picky eating on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix Special Nutrition Therapy Series, where we're going to dive into the approaches, practices, dietary theories, and healing foods that have been used in the most successful practices across the globe and throughout history. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. The 15-Minute Matrix is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons which highlight the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition, and that's the Functional Nutrition Matrix. The Functional Nutrition Matrix reminds us of three very important factors in our clinical care. Everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Dr. Vaish Sarate. Vaish Sarate, PhD, is a functional nutrition consultant and a math science educator, as well as a graduate of Functional Nutrition Alliance's Full Body Systems and Certified Functional Nutrition and Lifestyle Practitioner Programs. She has a practice centered on kids with disabilities, including Down syndrome, autism, and ADHD. Her TEDx talk, Who Decides How Smart You Are?, is credited as perspective shifting both by parents and practitioners working with kids with disabilities. And in her first interview on this very podcast, she explored that topic. You'll find that episode number 126 on mapping the assumption of competence linked in the show notes. Vaish is the founder of Functional Nutrition for Kids, a practice run with the motto, Sound Nutrition, Equal education and a rested mind are the birthright of every child. She brings a unique approach of working with every child from the point of competence and respect and using nutritional and learning strategies to optimize gut health, brain function, and communication. Vaish, welcome back to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm so excited for today's conversation. Thank you, Andrea. I'm always excited to have a conversation with you. I'm really honored to be here. So glad we're talking about such an important topic. So today, Vaish, we're focusing on picky eating. And I know we'll specifically be looking at picky eating in children. But when it comes to kids, one thing that I've found is that it can be a subjective perspective because some parents or caregivers seem to make all sorts of allowances for picky eaters in their household without the label and all the accommodations, while others seem to over-index on that label. So what actually signals us that we have a picky eater on our hands? And is that even a fair label? Like with everything else, picky eating can fall on a spectrum. And I'm going to address the naming and the label and the language part first, because I've gotten feedback from adults who are autistic, who are picky eaters, that they don't appreciate being called picky eaters because 
picky seems like a whimsical choice that is being made intentionally by the person. However, self-restriction or restricted eating or selective eating, while they might mean the same thing to some people, have a connotation in the sense that something inside them, something is preventing or something is, is making it difficult for that process to happen. While this does fall on a spectrum, honestly, you're right that parents can get concerned at different points in the spectrum. And it's actually pretty common for most children to be choosy in what they like and what they don't like. But at a point where your choice of foods becomes so restricted that every meal plan becomes a little bit traumatic for the parent and the child is self-restricting to an extent where growth becomes hindered, where diversity of food becomes significantly hindered. Again, I realize that I'm being subjective in my description, but it's usually really obvious. So I don't like to give a number, like if you're eating less than 10 foods, you're picky, but I think that would be a good gauge. There's a few things that you said that I just want to underscore, Vaish. First of all, that the nomenclature is not fair, so to speak, that thinking of it as selective eating is a better way to look at it versus picky because picky may be telling us something about what's not working for the person. So we don't want to override that decision or make it, as you said, whimsical. And the other thing is that there is a spectrum and that when we get to the place as the person who's preparing the food, where we're preparing different meals or we're jumping through hoops, making several different options, that this is when we may raise a little bit of a red or white flag to say, what's going on here? So what is going on there? I know it can be many things, but if we think about it through the lens of the story or the ATMs, are there things that predispose us to being selective eaters? Yes, absolutely. So I want to kind of start this conversation by saying that behavior is communication. And the reason I'm making this comment before I get into the ATMs, the antecedents, triggers, and so on, is because the current approach to picky eating almost universally is behavior-oriented. It's considering it as a behavior. And as long as we do that, we're not really getting to the root cause, as you know, but also to understand that behavior doesn't stand in isolation. All behavior, in my opinion, is communication. And coming to the root causes... These can be sensory issues. They can be tactile issues where the child is gagging at certain textures and we're kind of going outside in. So the sensory and the motor issues, oral motor challenges. A lot of kids, for example, with autism and Down syndrome will be choosy or selective eaters because it's just too hard for them to handle certain foods. If you go back inside, these can be caused by nutrient deficiencies but nutrient deficiency itself can be a root cause in selective eating. So when I say these, I mean sensory and motor issues can be caused by nutrient deficiency. If we go further inward, we can have inflammation. Uh, this can be inflammation anywhere in the gut, starting from your food pipe all the way down. And this obviously brings in a discomfort while eating. And it's really hard for kids to be very specific because they're still trying to differentiate the inputs that are coming to them from the surroundings. And they're not going to tell you that this part of my throat is hurting and I'm, it's burning right here when I'm eating. Most likely the response is going to be that I don't want to eat this food. And then there can be infections. There's a lot of correlation observed, for example, with pants and pandas with sudden onset OCD specifically related to eating. And I'm giving a very specific example, but these could be any sort of infections that of course can cause inflammation too. 
So between nutrient deficiency, inflammation, and selective eating, that itself is a pretty vicious cycle because we know picky eating itself causes nutrient deficiency. And then finally, because I was going outside in, there's trauma, and this can either be outside or inside, wherever we want to think about it. This can be emotional trauma, but it can also be digestive trauma. It can be biochemical trauma. And for kids, honestly, it could be one or the other, but it is not uncommon to have physical trauma. For example, if I had to be very specific, sometimes babies have acid reflux and you know, the conventional treatment for acid reflux can, you know, perpetuate the cycle. That itself can cause significant inflammation in the digestive tract. And every process of eating can eventually kind of reiterate the cycle more and more where eating, it becomes correlated with choking for some people. There's so much there. And I really like the way you went outside in and also that notion of the vicious cycle, right? Because there's a lot going on. I mean, the first thing it seems like we have to pay attention to both as parents, but as practitioners is that the child's body is communicating to them and to us. So we want to hear, right? Like there is a message in that selective behavior. It's not about being obstinate, right? So then it becomes our call to action to really go into discovery, what's happening and why. Is it a motor issue? Is it a tactile issue? Is it some difficulty that's happening with the internal reception to that food, whether that's because of inflammation or other deficiencies that are leading to things. It just sounds like it's complex. And when this is the case, I know it's hard for people to decode what to do and where to start. So how do we begin to think which of the many things it could be? That is a very good point. The root causes may be complex, but I like to keep the framework with which, whether you're a parent or a practitioner working with a child who's super selective, So my top three pillars are communicate and build trust because trauma is at the root of so much picky eating or selective eating that I don't like to go to the root cause before I have open communication with the child and some form of communication with the child, even if they're non-speaking, and to have a level of trust, which is why, for example, things like sneaking in food, which I actually thought was a great idea a few years ago, I've realized it's not so much a great idea now, like, for example, sneaking in healthy foods into purees or sauces and so on, because it kind of slowly erodes the trust built between the child and the parent. That is my first pillar. Whatever that means for you and your child or you and your client, communicate and build trust. Second is treat infection and inflammation. I think it's actually in a way a low-hanging fruit because it makes further therapies much easier to implement and to see results. And my third pillar is building nutrient density. So if we can have these framework of first trust, then infection slash inflammation, which is a huge area. I just said it simply, but it's a lot. And along with this, build nutrient density, even if that is through supplements initially, because that's probably going to have to be the case when a child is super selective. That's where we break the cycle at some point. 
Yeah, that's so brilliant, Vaish, because that trust is key, really being able to do a full assessment that includes the reality of the individual we're trying to help instead of overriding their messages. And I think that we see this manifest much later in older children and adults who haven't been listened to that start to get other labels like disordered eating when their body was actually telling us something. And as you said, those nutrient deficiencies lead to other downstream issues too. And I want to kind of double click on those nutrient deficiencies in just a second, but that communication and trust, brilliant. And then looking at where there is inflammation, you said it so well, Vaish, that when we're able to address that, it allows us to work with the other therapies. When that's not addressed, we're in an inflamed state. And that leads to all sorts of things from both a physiological and a psychological and behavioral issue. But those nutrient deficiencies, some of those are pretty key, as I understand it, in relation to that vicious cycle and that selective eating. What deficiencies have you found to be kind of fueling that selective fire? Famously, zinc, right? So because zinc is hard to get for many kids in general if they don't eat a complex or a diverse array of foods. However, zinc is also so critical in your taste and your smell, which are both deciding factors when a child is selective eating. So I had a kid that was, of course, low on zinc. Most of the kids that I see are. But we learned very late that he couldn't smell his food. And so I don't think I can articulate or convey properly what it means when you can't smell your food. It's impossible to actually enjoy your food and it becomes a huge chore. So what then happens is that the foods that the children choose are foods that end up giving you a huge kick and that could be something super crisp. So that child might only eat chips or it might be something super sweet. They might only eat donuts. If you're seeing that, actually, if you're seeing any form of selective eating, I would first test for zinc deficiency and or even supplement with some form of zinc. Secondly, magnesium, which is, as you know, is also really common as a deficiency. Now, magnesium deficiency, it's two-pronged. One is, as we know, it's involved in so many processes in our body, especially digestive processes. So the whole cascade of poor digestion. But secondly, it's also implicated in some sensory sensitivities. So we know that magnesium is a calming nutrient. And generally, children that are hypersensitive to sensory stimuli can benefit with some magnesium supplementation. And the third thing that I actually didn't mention as a pillar initially is sometimes the first thing you need to do in order to address super selective eating is to kind of address the fight or flight response. If a child is in a state of constant fight or flight or sympathetic arousal, it's really hard to get anything else to work. And magnesium can be an important nutrient there too. Mm, Yeah, so many complexities to what's actually going on versus, as you said earlier, just hiding healthy, quote unquote, healthy foods inside of other foods. We really need to think through this lens of deficiencies and non-negotiables, bringing that body into the rest and digest, that parasympathetic state. Are there other pillars, Vaish, that we haven't addressed there are other pillars. <laughs> there, are, there are my three secondary pillars because it's kind of awkward to have more than three inside pillars. So 
We start with communication and trust, infection, inflammation, nutrient density, and my three secondary pillars that can be primary sometimes. My first thing is calming. So to bring in the calm, so shifting the nervous system into parasympathetic. This is really key. And the only reason it's secondary is because sometimes it can't happen if you don't build trust or treat infection. Second is to support the microbiome. Again, it's a vicious cycle with selective eating. Selective eating can impact microbiome diversity and lack of microbiome diversity can impact what foods you crave. And finally is building sensory tolerance. This is usually the only pillar that is addressed when people go to feeding therapy. So my biggest takeaways, Vaish, are really the complexity of this thing that we kind of brush off as you said, as whimsical, when there might be a lot going on that we can be addressing at an early stage to set up the body's resilience for a healthier future. And it's almost like we should be double clicking on the picky eating as a huge sign that we need to pay attention versus just band-aiding that just like everything else. But I'm, I'm just really struck by how picky eating is a signpost for a lot more that allows us to, at an early stage, pay attention. Absolutely. I think that whoever's working, we need to kind of be relentless in our intention and our enthusiasm because it's also a, it's a long game. It is not going to respond to a pill for an ill. So be relentless in your intention and enthusiasm, but I would say be open in your approach where you're ready to move between the pillars. Yeah, I love the pillars. And I'm going to ask you for some final thoughts, but this might be a little bit of a strong statement from me, but in the way that you're talking about it, Vaish, it sounds like one of the first ways in a person's life that were medical gaslighting, right? Because there's a message somebody's trying to tell us in their own way something is not right, and we're overriding it with building sensory tolerance or looking at behavior or sneaking in and bypassing trust. And that sets the stage for a lot more trauma to come and a lot more disconnect from the messages of our very own bodies. I think this is really true. And also we're dealing with a population that is very sensitive to building trust, right? We're hitting them where they're most vulnerable. So in my opinion, if you had to choose something, I think to have a temporarily super selective child or a dysregulated child with high self-esteem and high trust is preferable to having an outwardly healthy child with deep set emotional trauma and trust issues. So that is why I agree with the term medical gaslighting. And I would say that build the trust and look deeper and look for behavior, accept that behavior is communication. So beautifully said, Vaish. Again, I'm thrilled to have had this time with you and thank you for illuminating the complexities of something that seems sort of simple and just annoying for us parents and many practitioners. Thank you, Andrea. The 15-Minute Matrix is brought to you by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. Check out the latest in functional nutrition at functionalnutritionlab.com forward slash blog. The 15-Minute Matrix is produced, mixed, and edited by Rowan Bradley with production support from Natalie Merrill and the team at the Functional Nutrition Alliance.
You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com. And if you'd like to be notified by email each week about our podcast releases, head on over to 15minutematrix.com forward slash notify. Also, please feel free to get in touch with us. We would love to hear your thoughts, your feedback, and who you'd like to hear next on the podcast. You can email us at ask at 15minutematrix.com. 